All right. I managed to get the recorder going, so we're ready. <laughs> In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for this day on which we celebrate the resurrection of your Son. We ask that today's liturgy may remind us of the importance of witnessing to your coming into our lives and into the world, that the world may be filled with hope, that we may hope for the resurrection and for the redemption of creation through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. Okay. Uh, welcome. It's good to see you all. A um, few things uh, before we get started. Do you have any announcements? No, I have nothing to this time. Okay. Enjoy it. Great. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll mention one announcement, and then I have some, some nuts and bolts kinds of things to talk about at the beginning today. Uh, the, the basic announcement is uh, uh, December 31st, we have Vespers that night uh, with Scola Laudis, and um, it's at 5.15. I'm hoping that because it's Christmas Eve, or I'm sorry, New Year's Eve, uh, that uh, this, not too many of you will, will have to get off of work early to get there if you want to come. Uh, but I would just really urge you, if you're available, uh, to end the old calendar year and begin the new calendar year with the celebration of Mary, the mother of God. Uh, the, it's an interesting Vespers because normally when we do solemn Vespers, uh, the Scola sings an opening and a closing procession, a motet, we would call it at those points. Plus they sing the hymn and the Magnificat with us. Uh, at this liturgy, what's very interesting is that uh, the antiphons that go with the Psalms for this liturgy traditionally went with the uh, liturgy of the circumcision of our Lord, which is eight days after his birth, according to Jewish law. Uh, and uh, today we celebrate that day as Mary, the mother of God, which is also, by the way, an ancient liturgical practice to celebrate her feast day on the 1st of January, eight days after December 25th. Um, but what's happened is with the change of the calendar, we took those old antiphons from the circumcision and we placed them in this office of Mary, the mother of God. They're really beautiful antiphons taken from the Old Testament prophecies. And what's very interesting, and I'm, I'm not a musicologist, so I can't tell you why this is, but a number of composers at the beginning of the 16th century uh, set these antiphons to music very beautifully. And my favorite Renaissance composer of them all, Josquin Desprez, uh, set these antiphons, and the Scola will be singing them. So uh, I invite you to join us for that. And uh, we'll be in touch with you because if, there are, if you are coming and you're available, uh, we could use some help with serving and incense and things like that for that liturgy. Then I, I can trance... Uh, uh, oh, gosh, my, my mind is... I can move from, from that uh, announcement to uh, an update on some things we've been discussing. I sent an email to all of the uh, formal oblates. This didn't go out to the oblate novices. And I thank you for uh, the feedback that I got. It was very helpful. Um, and so I wanted to give you an update on uh, where things stand. Back in July, we had a meeting at which I talked about the strategic planning initiative that our monastery is doing. 
and I asked you for some feedback about what your uh, intentions as oblates are, what your expectations of the community are, and so on. And what we came up with together was uh, involving more experienced oblates in formation of novices, as we've had several volunteers help to help with that. So I'm going to be uh, getting you in contact with oblate novices so that you can uh, work together with them over the coming year. And then sometime in January, I would like to meet in as much as we can, uh, those who are mentoring would meet with me and we would come up with a common program together. Uh, if we can't all meet at the same time, we'll figure something out. Um, but uh, that's, that's the plan and it seems to be coming together. I also did manage to record the first three podcasts and I plan to do the next seven or so before the end of the year. Thank you for the feedback, it was very positive, so I think we're on the right track. And then hopefully very soon we'll have them posted in a public place on the internet so that the, any of you who wanna to listen to them can, uh, but they're mostly intended for those who are in initial formation as an introduction to the rule of St. Benedict is really the heart of our spirituality as we interpret the gospels through this rule. Uh, we also talked about the liturgy and uh, another thing I'm hoping to do uh, soon is have one of the monks work with you, not only for December 31st, for those who'd like to come, but for uh, other big liturgies and even Sunday Mass. Uh, we could use help with serving at Mass with the sacristy uh, and uh, there were, oh yeah. And uh, at some point or other, I, I'm going to have music practices for anybody who's interested, if you'd like to uh, sing, be able to contribute more by singing the liturgy with us. And I'm working on a way of uh, getting the uh, office books that we use available for you on the internet. So you could, uh, we have to figure out some copyright things. I can't just post them on the internet because we use copyrighted texts and we only have permission to reproduce like 25 of them at a time. So I need to work that out. But once I do, uh, you'll have access to our liturgy books and we can explain to you how to use them and all that. Uh, you don't have to, uh, you can use other versions, licit versions of the Roman office, but uh, I thought you might like to be able to join us uh, with the office that we do. My sabbatical was helpful on this because I took PDF versions of our office books with me and prayed that while I was traveling, and I found it really helpful actually. It was very nice to be able to pray the same office as the brothers rather than a shorter one. Uh, let's see, other things about praying and so on. I think that, that, that gets at it. The other thing we talked about together back in July, and I thank you, July is a long time ago now, it's five months ago. But uh, you, as you know, I was gone for about two months in the meantime, so uh, I've had to kind of get caught up here the last few weeks. We're, we'll try to come up with a, uh, one or two days of recollection this coming year. Uh, we'll continue to have work days for those who are available. Um, and uh, the other thing is, uh, so part of what I'm working through with the community and I want to communicate to you is that when you're oblates of our monastery, uh, we have obligations to you and you have obligations to us. So we, we have a right to expect things of one another because we're trying to build a common community here. Um, however, that works for you, right? As your state of life permits. So it will be different for everybody. So we're trying to offer different ways that you can contribute, either at the liturgy, uh, helping out with work. 
We have uh, one oblate who's helping us uh, with accounting. You know, if you have a specialty where you can assist us because um, we don't have any accountants in the monastery, <laughs> but we have to do our own books. So that kind of thing is very helpful. Um, there are various ways you can contribute. Uh, obviously, most of you are, are, are big benefactors of the monastery, and we're very grateful for that. So that is one way. And then you can just tell people about us and bring them here, you know, that kind of thing. Like our posts on Facebook. <laughs> uh, get your friends to like us on Facebook. That helps. Uh, we've, we've been, uh, since we put a donate button on, the, on our Facebook page, we've been, that's actually worked pretty well. And that will work better the more people know that it's there, you know, that kind of thing. So there are all kinds of ways uh, you can help. And one of the things I'll do is try to standardize this over the next couple months by just sending you uh, a form or something that just says, like, this is what you'd like to participate in in the coming year. Uh, and then we will, I'll explain to you more of the, the benefits you get from being oblates. Primarily, those are the, the spiritual fruits from our own prayer, but also from the instruction that we are obliged to give you. Okay, so that is that. Oh, and I, I had one other uh, announcement I needed to make, and that is we're in the process of making some changes to the job assignment. So uh, there may be a new assistant or a new, uh, a second assistant to Father Edward, we'll see in the new year. I, I haven't made that decision yet, but just, I don't want you to be surprised if you show up here in January and there's a different monk other than Father Edward. Um, He'll have other things that he's working on, don't worry. Uh, there's no, no shortage of work in the monastery. So, good. Now, what I'd like to talk about today uh, is something I've been talking about in many different fora for the past few weeks. Uh, and it came partly out of um, my uh, time of sabbatical and partly out of uh, my awareness over the last, let's just for convenience sake, say uh, two years and one month, <laughs> um, high levels of anxiety in our, in our society and in the church. And this high level of anxiety witnesses to uh, a lack of hope. So uh, why should we be hopeful? And what should we be hoping for? Hope is a theological virtue. <laughs> And uh, so it, be, it being a virtue, it can become stronger by exercising it. And so I want to encourage you to exercise this virtue of hope today. And I'm going to uh, hopefully give you some ideas on uh, why we've forgotten about this virtue, why anxiety is so high because we hope in the wrong things, etc., etc. So I'm going to begin with two quotes today. The first one comes from... Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI in his encyclical Space Salvi, Saved in Hope. He writes, every generation has the task of engaging anew in the arduous search for the right way to order human affairs. This task is never simply completed. Okay, so that's us. It's our turn on the earth. Uh, it's our job to uh, engage in an arduous search for the right way to order human affairs. Okay. Uh, now, if you think about that for a moment, it sounds like a pretty high goal for like, say, the 25 of us or how many of us are here. But in, in another way, I'll just say this is partly what this idea of the Benedict option is, right? So smaller groups of local uh, 
communities ordering life together, okay, living together, deciding we're going to live in a certain way and then encouraging one another to do it. Second quotation, this is from Alistair McIntyre, so my favorite philosopher. Uh, maybe I've shared it with you already, but he writes this in his book, uh, Christianity and Marxism. Liberalism abandons hope. Uh, now, it's important for me to explain what he means by liberalism in this quote, because he's not talking about uh, the left wing of American politics or the Democratic Party. He would consider both major parties in the United States, he's very explicit about this, to be part of liberalism, because liberalism is the political philosophy that has governed the West since at least the French uh, Revolution. So what does it mean? Uh, it is a political arrangement. So this is an arrangement of <clears throat> human affairs. And this is what Pope Benedict is talking about. Each of us has to reconsider this every generation. Uh, but I would like to suggest that we haven't really reconsidered it. Uh, and we've done so less and less as Catholics in the last, say, 100 years or so. We've just taken for granted that the way that politics is set up is there's no better way. And uh, what, what are some of the, what do I mean by this? Well, it has to do with uh, prizing individual freedom, uh, kind of exalting reason and science. Uh, in a liberal society, each individual has the right to determine for herself or himself what to pursue, what to believe, and so on. Right? So we often think of, say, religious freedom as being important in a liberal society. Uh, we can't coerce people into religious belief, or we're not supposed to. That's one of the, the freedoms we have. And the purpose of the government in, in a, an arrangement like this is to make sure that these liberties are protected and respected by everybody, so you aren't coerced into things. Now, if you're thinking about this, obviously there's a fair amount of coercion of various sorts going on. Uh, like, say, when, when bakers... Uh, get taken to court because they won't bake a certain type of cake be based on their beliefs. Now, as it seems like there's some problem with this liberal model. And again, please hear when I say liberal, not Democratic Party, but United States politics in general, both conservatives and liberals. Uh, so that's when McIntyre says liberalism abandons hope, he's saying that our current political arrangement is one that does not conduce to hope, okay? Uh, it's interesting, I, I have wondered since I, I, I reread this and I, I never noticed this quote, I've read the book probably four times now over the past 15 years. And I didn't notice that this quote, liberalism abandons hope, echoes Dante until I read it uh, last month. And <clears throat> does anybody know what the sign says above the entrance to hell? Uh, Right, yeah, all who enter here abandon hope. <laughs> so that's, that's the mark of the inferno, that's the mark of hell, it's a place where there is no hope. So if it's true that our political uh, arrangement is one that abandons hope, it, it's going to lead to uh, a bad situation, let's just say. And uh, if we experience a lot of anxiety in our political life today, maybe this is true. Maybe McIntyre was onto something when he wrote this in 1965, okay? Now I'm going to return to the first quotation from Pope Benedict. So every generation is supposed to engage in a search for the right way to order human affairs. We never come up with a perfect system in this world. 
Okay, there's no final system that we've, well, now we've got it. Um, I'm going to introduce a third quotation. Uh, this is from uh, Francis Fukuyama. He wrote this in 1992. What we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such, that is, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. <laughs> okay, so uh, this is a, from a famous book called The End of History. Um, I haven't followed up on Fukuyama to see if he's ever repudiated this. Um, I don't know if anybody knows whether he, he's followed up on this in the past 25 years. Um, but this is quite a, a statement. And there were lots of, uh, lots of people who believed this back then, and it was very enticing. You know, uh, We knew that the Soviet Union was bad, the Soviet Union fell apart. And obviously, liberal democracy must be the best form of government. We don't have to engage in an arduous search anymore for the, uh, the best way to order human affairs. It's done. So the question is, again, like, what is there to hope for? If we've, if we've got it, if, if, there's, if we can't change anything, it's, it's all finished. What's there to hope for in this, in this life, right? Um, oh, having said in this life, I think you'll recognize that there's also some some problem here. So what Fukuyama was suggesting was that civilizations professing liberalism as a form of organization had triumphed over the totalitarian socialist states and now no future generations had to engage in the arduous search for the right way to order human affairs. Now I brought in all three of these quotations to help explain why hope is so difficult for us. Uh, most of us, probably all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we've been strongly influenced by Western liberalism because we've grown up in it. Uh, we just absorb the values from television shows, from work arrangements, from newspaper articles, etc. And that, that's going to be the case whether we identify ourselves as conservative or <coughs> reactionary or liberal or progressive or whatever it is. And uh, I, I would say, uh, how many of us ever stop and think, like, maybe there's a better way to organize politics in the world? Uh, it's interesting with the whole question of the caravan coming up through Mexico. Uh, without, you know, having an opinion on what we should do vis-a-vis -vis this caravan, the, the assumption on one side is that the borders of nation states are what they are and nation states just exist and that we can't change them in any way. But actually this is part of the liberal order. There weren't nation states before, there were kingdoms and kingdoms are slightly different things actually. And if you're a subject of a king, it has a different sort of implication than if you're a citizen of a liberal democracy, okay? So that's just to say there are different ways to think about these things and uh, migrant caravans in 1000 BC had different implications than this one does. And the limits on how we can conceive of what to do about this situation have to do with the limits that are imposed on us by the political arrangement that we've sort of unreflectively have accepted. And so as Catholics, we can think outside of that because we have a much larger uh, repertoire of, of political ideas from 2,000 years of history. Uh, so, just an example. Then, then there's also this question, is that, you know, what happens when cracks appear? So I said two years and one month because uh, 
in the lead up to the election in 2016, I was quite astonished to see um, what I thought were, uh, I'd say on both sides of the aisle, but, but I heard a lot more from uh, supporters of candidate Hillary Clinton, uh, sort of arguments why we should vote for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump that were, to my mind, completely illogical, uh, irrational because there was no way they were going to convince anyone who didn't already agree with you. <laughs> and in that, if that's the case, what's the point of the argument? <laughs> you know, why say, obviously we have to vote for Hillary Clinton because if you don't, uh, you, you are unintelligent. Like, that's not an argument. <laughs> that, that is, that's, that's a fallacy. So yeah, and and uh, I think partly as a, as a Catholic clergyman, I knew people who were going to vote for all kinds of different people. And they, once you sort of checked into it, they, they actually had good reasons. Uh, people were aware of the limitations of the different candidates, et cetera, et cetera. But it was almost impossible to get people to talk to each other. <laughs> and when I would try to uh, broker some kind of conversation, uh, I was just immediately accused of being on the other side. And, uh, and honestly, I wasn't on anybody's side. I'm kind of like an ant, you know, the, the ant's um, tree beard in Lord of the Rings. Uh, what, what, uh, who is it? Uh, Mary and Pippin come upon him and they say, you know, there's a war going on. Whose side are you on? And his response is, hmm, whose side? Well, I'm not sure I'm on anybody's side because I'm not sure anyone's on my side. <laughs> And I think as Catholics, uh, you know, Tolkien, who, who wrote the story, was a Catholic. And I think that echoes something of where we are as Catholics. We, we, don't, uh, we don't identify with that, those sorts of party politics because our, our kingdom is outside of that. It doesn't mean we shouldn't vote or actually support a candidate. But we're always somewhat on the outside of worldly politics because uh, we have hope for a different, a different kingdom. Uh, so... This, this is one of the reasons why in American politics, traditionally Catholics have been suspect because uh, the idea is we're going to be told by the Pope what to do politically and we'll do it. And so we're sort of subjects of a foreign power <laughs> um, for what it's worth. So uh, so we see cracks in the system and there's all this anxiety. And I think one of the things we see, I wrote about this at the time, is that uh, if we can't reason with each other, if we can't at, at this level, person to person, have a discussion, and we don't have to agree necessarily, but, we, but to really give the other person a chance to speak and to honor the other person's opinion, if we can't do that and have a rational discussion, all we have is power from, from someone who has authority to tell us what to do. And what happens then is... Uh, Whoever has the most power is going to be, the, that's going to be where it all rests. And this manifests itself in American political life with this great terror over who's going to be president. Because partly we've given too much power to the executive branch, I think. You know, the Congress hasn't really done its job to check the checks and balances with the executive branch. Um, and, uh, but we have the same problem in the Catholic Church where, so we put all of our, Ducks, or what, I, what, I'm getting all my metaphors mixed up today. We, we, we put everything on the Pope, you know? 
And uh, I'm not saying the Pope's not important, but you and I as Catholics living together at, at the local level, we have a lot to do. And, and the Pope doesn't know what we're doing. <laughs> he can't know what all billion and a half Catholics are up to, you know. Uh, so we can live the gospel at this level. And um, uh, we, we, don't, we don't have to fear if, if the president or the Pope isn't to our liking. You know, it's, in, in some sense, they're just one person. Uh, where we're living, where we make the important decisions might simply be at this more local level rather than trying to see that what the decisions of the very powerful, uh, what they say somehow has to impact us. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, we, we can decide how we want to live and put our lives together together here. You know, we can talk about it here. How do, what kind of lives do we want to live? How do we encourage each other to live a countercultural life? Uh, because again, as Christians, I think we're always going to have to be countercultural to some extent because no culture on earth is going to be <clears throat> enough to satisfy what the human heart is longing. And so we're going to have to point, we're going to have to find ways to point ourselves and those outside the church, maybe others within the church, to the kingdom of God. And then that means we have to be able to see it for ourselves and, and help each other to see it. And that's something we can do together. We don't, we don't have to wait for the, the Pope or the Bishop to rule on that. Uh, we simply live it now. Uh, Christ is present in the Eucharist right here. He, he, we all received him today in the Eucharist. So uh, we're set to go. <laughs> you know, uh, if, we, if we're in communion with Christ, uh, we have our marching orders, as it were. So where have I left off in here? So I brought up the Benedict option last time. Um, this is a, both a term and a book. Um, that's a book by Rod Dreher, and he came up with this term based on something that McIntyre wrote back in 1981. And uh, I, I want to say here again that I think that Dreher is on to something, though I, I personally have some disagreements with some aspects of his writing. But he has a basic intuition that Christians must rediscover new ways of organizing our lives together that uh, we can't just expect that one or other political party is going to do this work for us. Okay, so we're going to, oh, we're going to have to uh, think for ourselves. And in, one, in some sense, what he's saying is what Pope Benedict was saying, right? That we have to engage in an arduous search for the best way to order our affairs together, okay? And what Dreher is saying is that probably we're going to have to do this at a very local level because... Uh, again, I, I, I'm not sure he grasps all the implications of, of McIntyre's philosophy, but definitely one of the things McIntyre is interested in is this idea that there has to be a rational discussion of people who live together. And so in his last book uh, that came out in 2016, McIntyre has stories about communities like fishing communes where they have to work together for the benefit of everybody to make sure that they make enough money in their fishing. They, they have to... Uh, lobby for treatment, uh, good treatment by uh, local officials and so on. And, uh, but we can do the same thing. And one of the things that a monastery has in its favor is that we monks take a vow of stability. So we're not likely to go anywhere anytime soon. We're going to be here. You can come anytime. You can find us. And we're going to be 
uh, arguing and discussing among ourselves. So, so the strategic planning that we're doing, we're having a discussion with our, within our, our own community. What's our hope for, what's our vision for the future? How are we gonna live this? How are we gonna do this? Uh, what are the things that we're doing now that really make it hard to live the gospel? Because we're not doing, you know, we're stepping on our own feet, as it were. How can we call each other to account and say, like, when you do that, it causes a problem, right? Um, and so uh, I think this idea of the Benedict Option is a really important one. And uh, hopefully, as we go forward, I'll be able to explain more of, you know, where I think... Dreer is right, and where I think we could improve on what he's saying. And I'll say right off the bat, in one way, I think he doesn't go far enough, <laughs> which is funny. Um, he's had a couple of people tell him that, uh, and it's, it's ironic because most people have the opposite reaction, like, oh, things can't be that bad, as you say. And uh, what I mean by this is this. I think in a number of ways, number of ways uh, he continues to presuppose that liberalism is just a given, that we just have to live under uh, uh, modern liberal democracy, and there are no other ways of organizing our life except fascism, right? That's sort of like the only <coughs> other option. But I, I'm saying, no, no, I think there are many other ways we could do this. Um, and, uh, but the Benedict option, the idea of this comes from the fact that uh, in when St. Benedict was alive, say around the year 500, uh, the unthinkable was happening. The Roman Empire was falling apart. No one thought this was possible uh, for hundreds of years. Rome was just a given. There's no question that Rome was going to rule the world. And it, it did for a long time, very effectively. And then Constantine took the capital to uh, Byzantium, and Rome imploded, you know, and uh, actually Rome was a wasteland for hundreds of years, uh, believe it or not. And in the year 500, no one was quite sure what to make of it, but, but lots of people kept thinking, well, what we need to do is get the Roman Empire back and up and running. <laughs> and maybe we need uh, the Goths to become the emperors, you know, this kind of thing. And McIntyre says, well, actually, someone uh, like St. Benedict or his followers said, nah, let's try something else. <laughs> Let's try small communities uh, where we follow the gospel and uh, gradually evangelize Europe, you know, and that's what happened. Uh, so this is what I'm proposing that, that we could do this together, you and I. So what is it about liberalism that it doesn't afford hope? Uh, and Abes, I should just say, I'm, I'm using this term liberal in a very particular way. It means sort of all of contemporary politics, liberal or conservative. So um, it's not Democratic Party or something like that. Um, so what does McIntyre mean about this? So Pope Benedict says that uh, in the modern world since the French Revolution, which is where I said this idea of liberalism gets its beginning, uh, that the hope we have is no longer hoping God, a hope to return to paradise that was lost because of sin. So hope that's given to us by Jesus Christ in the resurrection and in the incarnation. So this, this hope in a, a different kind of future, a transformative future, uh, the Enlightenment thinkers got impatient waiting for this to happen and instead sort of took the bull by the horns. So according to Pope Benedict, modern hope 
comes from scientific and political progress. So progress is, is where hope is found. And um, just before I left for England, I wrote a blog post in which I alluded to progressivism in American history. And I claimed that progressivism makes us anxious. Because <laughs> well, for one thing, it makes, uh, it makes our hope dependent on, on our own efforts. You know, so our hope is sort of in ourselves. We're going to make progress by sort of seeing how we can make education better, how we can uh, alleviate poverty by various kinds of taxation redistribution. And all this is gonna happen. We're gonna make paradise here on earth in a sense. And um, it's a lot of pressure to have. Um, I think I, I probably said this last time, but it's worth saying again. Uh, uh, this for me manifested itself uh, especially in the new Star Trek uh, series, where it wasn't enough to go out and seek out new civilizations, but now uh, rifts were occurring in the space-time continuum, and if the sp Starship Enterprise didn't get there and knit up uh, reality, everything <coughs> would fall apart, you know, and we'd cease to exist, all of us, like the whole universe. And I think, you know, no pressure. <laughs> you know, no wonder we're anxious. We think everything depends on us now. Um, and there are, there are other things about this. And this is all, this is a part of this, this uh, modern liberal democracy again. This is all part of uh, a certain type of worldview. But we're going to see it's not very coherent with itself. So uh, another thing is hope for progress in, in this arrangement makes most of us, unless we happen to be in the government bureaucracy making the decisions, most of us are dependent on a kind of opaque bureaucracy. And we have to hope that the government's plans actually are for our good. But we don't really have a lot of ways of influencing them. I mean, we, have, we can vote every few years. Um, we can lobby, we can complain, we can, I don't know. But in the end, we don't have a lot of control over the decisions that are made at the national level even though they impact us a lot. Uh, I'll just say on its own terms, progressivism, uh, even though it's an outgrowth of liberalism, it's actually at odds with certain uh, tenets of liberalism. So in uh, the French Revolution, we had the bourgeois and proletarian revolutions. Uh, and the idea was if we could get rid of the old structures, so the old structures... Uh, were bad, but the idea is if we get rid of those, then we'll usher in an era of goodness and liberty and freedom and uh, equality, brotherhood. All these things would just naturally happen. Uh, and now you'll notice that this is kind of the same thing that Fukuyama was saying. If we just change the structures, get the structures right, we don't have to do any more work. Okay? And I'm, I'm riffing in here on, on Benedict the Sixteenth encyclical still. But here's the problem. Uh, it hasn't happened. So we got rid of the French monarchy. French have had all kinds of revolutions. We had a Russian revolution. We got rid of the Russian monarchy. Um, and, uh, and, and also we, the Soviet Union's no more. Uh, but each time we sort of get rid of the old bad people, we don't necessarily have uh, the uh, the, the, the final uh, goodness of, of humankind appearing. We still have problems. And the difficulty with this, as I see it, is that we forget that it's up to us to work at these things. 
we can't just take it for granted that somebody else is going to take care of how we organize this. this uh, but it's, it's really our time to do that. And the, the main problem here is that neither liberalism, as I'm defining it, nor progressivism really reckons with the fact that human freedom always presupposes that we can do evil. So Pope Benedict points out that progress, so hope and progress is kind of a double-edged sword because progress can be from a slingshot to nuclear bomb. Right? That's the kind of progress. Like They're more effective weapons. But for what? Right? So this is a problem. Uh, progress just means that we can do more evil than we used to be able to do more effectively. We see that, say, in the Holocaust as well. It couldn't work without trains and, and machine guns and things like that. So high technology. Uh, then there's the question of who decides whether we're making progress or whether we're going in the right direction. And uh, what to do if other people aren't going along with progress. Like if other people stand in the way of progress. What, what happens? Um, and the persons who get to make the decision are those who've achieved political power and have coercive abilities. So that's kind of a frightening thing because, um, again, if, if we don't know that, if, if someone who's making the decision doesn't recognize that progress can be progress in good or progress in evil, but just assumes that progress, as I understand it, is good, uh, th this is the kind of thing that can really produce a lot of terror. Because I'll just say, you know, in the Soviet Union, the, the revolution to, to bring in this Soviet system was intended to do something good. Uh, and uh, many of those who uh, operated the controls in the Soviet Union thought they were doing good. I can't speak for Stalin. <laughs> I don't know if he actually thought he was doing good or not. I kind of doubt it. I, I'm not sure he cared about it. But, uh, but there were lots of you know, really believing Soviets who thought that this is what, this is what we need to do. And we're blind to the dangers of taking away the freedom of, of people at ground level uh, and trying to coerce them into certain types of organization rather than letting them work through it for themselves at a local level, okay? So, let's see here, it's noon. So let me start moving back to some, what real hope is. So if hope is not in progress and hope is not in, in politics, and hope is not in science because technology can be used for evil. What is it uh, that we're supposed to do? Though so I want to say one other thing about McIntyre's quote because this is important for understanding uh, his philosophy and why I think it's uh, one of the best examples of how we can move forward as Catholics. So one of the things about liberalism as, as I'm presenting it here, and I'm trying faithfully to represent what McIntyre is saying, is that it gives the individual freedom to decide for himself what's good. So the, the tendency for that is to think that what I'd happen to desire right now is good. Uh, so desires generally tend to point us in the direction of some good. But what we discover as we get older, for example, when we're children, we can think that the good is having a cookie right now or having dessert before the main meal. And parents have to teach us, no, even though you undoubtedly think the cookie tastes better than your broccoli, uh, and you're probably right. What I want to teach you as your parent who knows this and you don't know it yet, is that uh, you are going to be, you're going to enjoy health and a certain type of flourishing if you eat your vegetables, 
You know, you're going to be healthy. And you're going to realize at some point in your life that it's better to be healthy and have the cookie later than to be uh, diabetic, for example, okay, to be unhealthy. And so, but the child doesn't know this yet. So the child has to be transformed from ignorance to knowledge in this way and needs someone who already knows to show them the way. But the problem is when we have this idea of a, a liberal society where whatever desire I happen to have as an individual, I don't have to be taught by anybody else to desire something better. I, and I don't necessarily have to ask whether the desire I have right now is a good desire to have because my freedom to pursue it, to try to you know, uh, attain what I desire at this moment is protected by the government, is protected by the, the, uh, the Bill of Rights. And so we see all kinds of things, people desiring stuff that's probably not very healthy for them or for the people around them. But there's this great sense that we've got to protect their right to pursue whatever it is they think they want, right? I mean, that is how our world is set up. So we don't have a way of inviting them to desire something better. Uh, and so this is why, and, and a, say a child who isn't taught how to desire the things that are good for him or her, doesn't have a hope for the future, uh, just experiences himself as what, you know, sort of what I desire right now, and then I get that, and then whatever I desire right now, I get that. But if I desire something greater, I might have to conceive of a plan for the future. I might have to look out and, and ask myself, what kind of future do I want? What would be a good future for me? And what would I have to give up now? What desires would I have to shelve and put to the side in order to get, um, you know, if Paul says, you know, athletes give up all kinds of things, right? So this, he's talking about hope here. Athletes, uh, I'm amazed at what athletes do these days. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was younger, uh, I, I was uh, a radio announcer and uh, I had a, uh, I was a sports, budding sports journalist as an 18 year old. And I'll just say, you know, the training regimens of athletes today are so incredible compared to what they were in the 1970s, you know? Um, and it, and uh, it's interesting, you know, any athlete who comes up through the ranks wants to get a championship. That's his hope, right? He wants that. And um, maybe uh, as a secondary thing, he wants to be the best at his position that anybody's ever been. But what really matters is the championship, so you have to learn to work with other people, which is really important. And, and then you have to have a coach who challenges you, who points out your flaws, who says, you know, here's what you need to do if you really want to be good. And I remember seeing an interview with uh, quarterback Aaron Rodgers saying, I want to be coached <laughs> because that's the only way to transcend where I'm at now. I need somebody else with kind of an objective perspective on this to say, if you really want to be good, do this. And if we really want to succeed as a team, we're going to do this. Um, and a lot of what that requires, though, is you give up stuff, right? You can't eat whatever you want. If you're going to be a top-level quarterback in the National Football League, you have to eat what your trainer tells you and nothing else. <laughs> you have to sleep like 10 hours a day. So if you're like me and you like staying up to read, or if you like being a monk and, and you know, breaking your sleep and getting up, you can't be... I had to give up whatever desire I had to be an NFL quarterback when I entered the monastery, <laughs> right? So, so any, any choice we have for a future, we have to say no to certain desires. And this is actually, oddly enough, antithetical to 
the things we've absorbed from modern liberalism. And it's one of the reasons why I think young people are, are directionless. Because in order to take a direction and say, I'm going to achieve this, I have to say no to video games. And it's not that video games are bad in, uh, in and of themselves, but I might have to give that up. I might have to say uh, no to dating for now in order to pursue this. I might have to say no to this in order to get married, right? Getting married means saying no to all kinds of other options. And, it's, and we say that's a good thing because actually being married has with it a certain type of future that, that is good. And so it's worth pursuing. And so I say no to other possibilities. Uh, so I, I think of um, uh, my, my sisters when they got married. It was fascinating to see how they changed. They were transformed by marriage, right? Because they had to act, take on different sorts of behaviors that they hadn't before. Learn to desire certain types of things that they hadn't before. Say the welfare of their children. They knew what it was, they had one idea of what it meant to desire a future for their children before they had children. And once they had children, they realized they had to adjust. They had to learn new, new ways of conceiving the future in order to really provide for real children who actually exist. And so um, all of these things in talking about the future, we're talking about cultivating hope. We're looking toward the future and looking at what's going to be achievable for us and we're hoping for that. And as a result of that, it's changing who we are now. That's important because oftentimes Christians are blamed because we hope in the kingdom of God that we don't care about what happens now. And that's not true because it's actually changing us in profound ways right now and, and in good ways. So, uh, let me offer uh, in this question about whether Christian hope, because again, our hope is in a political arrangement that comes down from God. It's the, you know, the kingdom of God, the city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and we're caught up into it. So this is what we're hoping for, is this, this uh, new people of God. Uh, we're part of that in some shadowy way right now, as long as we're uh, in this world. And... Uh, this is a, a kingdom in which the arrangements are really based in love, based in reason, based in human flourishing, based in knowing God, knowing the truth, you know, all these really good things. So we hope for these things. Uh, what does that do for us in this life is the question I'm gonna tackle next. Uh, is, it, is it fair, along with someone like Friedrich Nietzsche to say that, you know, Christians sort of, throw in the towel on the current political order and say like, well, you know, we'll just sit here and wait, uh, wait for the kingdom to come and I won't do anything here. And if this world falls apart, oh, well, it's not my problem. Uh, is that true? Is that what happens with Christians? Should we be putting more effort into figuring out how to fix this broken political system that we have? So here's another quote. This one comes from the liturgy of today. This comes from the antiphons for the office. Behold, our Lord shall come with power to give light to the eyes of his servants. So there are two things I'd like to finish with in terms of what it means to live hope in Advent. The first one is that uh, the kingdom of God is something that is already among us. It's already within us. And what we're aiming at is a transformation of awareness. I talked about this in one of the podcasts that you may have listened to that I, I sent around. 
Uh, so again, we're, we're learning to be transformed. We're, we start with our own innate potentialities, but it's through grace, it's from God's action that we come to see the reality of things that we couldn't see before. So uh, before we had faith, if you can imagine this, if you, if you were baptized uh, as an infant, you may not have a, an exact analogy for this, but a person without faith can come to Mass and see what the priest is distributing in Holy Communion and think it's bread and wine. But with the eyes of faith, we see, no, it's the body and blood of Christ. But we can do this in all kinds of things in our daily life. So, for instance, we can see in the poor person uh, who lives under the train tracks in our church, Jesus Christ. Okay, we can actually see that Christ is present there. Okay, we can see in the Son... uh, the Holy Spirit illuminating us so that we can see the truth of things. Okay, so to give light to the eyes of his servants, this isn't just a literal thing, it's a spiritual thing. So the eyes of our hearts and minds are open so that we can see Christ present now, transforming the world now. Uh, And if we see this, then we're going to be hopeful. (laughs) Okay, because oftentimes what we see is that things aren't going very well. Right? And that's what we're told over and over again because uh, that's what sells newspapers. Uh, we can learn to see uh, Christ active in the monastery. Uh, we, can, we can hear the voice of the Lord speaking to us through the teaching of the priests of the monastery or through the activities of the monks. Um, and so this can train us to see Christ at work when we go to work, when we're at home, when we're out on the street, when we're shopping, any place we go, God is there. But are we aware? Are we, are we seeing what God is up to at the pre- in the present moment? Or are we distracted and, and sort of is our own world, so again, sort of collapsing back into this material reality where there is no, there's kind of a ceiling on what we can accomplish. Because once God is present, there is no ceiling on what we can accomplish, right? Um, so what I'd like to finish with is I've been talking about hope as the future. Now I'd like to talk about uh, why it's important for us if we're going to understand the future or we're going to have a hope for the future, we have to have memory. And this is another reason why it's hard to hope because we don't remember stuff very well. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, first, let me, let me say this. Uh, For us to understand what's possible in the future, okay, what, so again, uh, for an athlete to have a hope to be a champion in whatever sport he's in or she is in, uh, it's important to understand something about the sport, right? It's also important to know whether or not I have the, uh, the natural talent, for example. And um, so I, I, my best sport as a, as a youngster was basketball. And uh, it, I had trouble um, uh, playing it regularly in high school because it always conflicted with the, the uh, schedule for music stuff. And I was also a musician. Uh, but I always thought of myself as a pretty good basketball player. And then I was, uh, one summer I did social work in Baltimore and I used to go to these pickup games uh, in, in these you know, sort of poorer neighborhoods where I worked. And I remember, there was this one guy who was just killing us. I mean, he, he, uh, he was so quick and so big. 
And I usually played uh, guard because uh, in, in basketball terms, I'm, I'm kind of short. Um, and, uh, but I thought, uh, somebody's got to stop this guy. You know, we're getting killed by this guy. So I said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good on defense. I'll, I'll take him. And the first play, uh, he, he faked one way, and I didn't go for the fake. And he thought I'd go for the fake. So he turned around to shoot, thinking I wasn't going to be there. And I was there. Well, my, my face was there. Boom. <laughs> Hits me with his elbow. I'm bleeding all over the place. He scores easily. He's all sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. It's like, this guy is way better than I am. So any hope I had for being a professional basketball player, no. So I, I understand. My potential only reaches this far. You know, sort of pretty good at pickup ball in Baltimore. <laughs> like that's, that's my level of basketball. Um, so each of us needs to be able to, to say, like, I have this possibility, or I don't have that possibility. Um, we know that by coming to know who we are. But we can't know who we are if we don't know our own history. Okay, so that's one of the difficulties, is oftentimes, say, when it comes to something like uh, race relations in the United States, I learned a lot when I did uh, social work in Baltimore. It's easy if you grow up in a place like, like Green Bay, Wisconsin, where uh, probably 95 to 97% of the population when I was a kid was white. I think like, well, if we just all have good intentions and we're nice to each other, we can, we can deal with racism. And then you realize, well, actually, there's a history, right? There's a history that I'm, I'm forgetting. Like lots of stuff happened in the past in, in the United States and elsewhere. And I can't just pretend like that didn't happen. Otherwise, uh, I'm not going to know sort of where I stand or where the other person stands, like what our common history is. And I'm going to uh, propose futures that are unrealistic <laughs> uh, because I don't know the past. I don't know what's possible based on the past. If I know the past, then we can come up with a, a common future where we agree, well, this is possible. This much we could do, right? So we need a memory of the past. And if we don't have a memory of the past, the things we're gonna hope for might be unrealistic. And as a result, we might become disappointed and cynical when, when they don't work out. Okay, so it's really important to know something about the past. So how does this work with us here today? Well, I think we have several pasts that we need to remember and reflect on regularly in order to see where God is leading us, to see where, where, what God is proposing for us into the future. So for example, each of us has a personal history. Uh, we have a background, we have an, a certain type of education, we come from a certain type of family. Uh, the brothers can tell you, I think one of the things we've discovered in recent years in formation is that uh, our personal histories with our families have a big impact on how we act in community life in the monastery. And learning our potential as monks comes about by learning uh, the ways in which we've been formed by our families and sort of the, the, the things that hamper us from our family experience and the things that liberate us from our family experiences. Uh, each of us participate in church history. So this is, I think, one of the difficulties we run into when there's lots of anxiety in the church today. And I don't, I don't mean this in any facile way, like, oh, there have always been scandals in the church, so we shouldn't really worry too much about... Uh, you know, what's going on right now with the bishops. I'm thinking of more, more in the sense of, um, you know, how did, we come, how did it come about that we understand the bishops to have a particular role? 
Is it possible, uh, looking through history, that, that the laity can have a different kind of responsibility in the church, for example? Are we aware that uh, the church had a different <clears throat> approach to the clerical state at different times? Um, are we aware that monasticism has, has typically been a lay movement, for example? That, that uh, uh, clerics in monasteries is something relatively recent and it's always been contested to some extent. And many of the reforms that took place in the Middle Ages were a re, re, uh, response, let's say, to pressure for monasteries to clericalize and have more priests. Uh, so there's a lot of rich history in the church. And once we know more of that history, it opens up possibilities. We read a, a book at table uh, some years ago. We started rereading it this past year, but we, uh, we stopped. And I, we probably won't take it up again. But I would definitely encourage the brothers uh, to read it. It's called The Barbarian Conversion. And I can sum up the thesis like this. We've told stories about how Europe was Christianized by missionaries, and we've usually told it through sort of hagiography, which for me, there's nothing wrong with that. So this, the great saints like Boniface went out and uh, they <clears throat> came upon these heathen people. They cut down their sacred trees, preached the gospel, and within a generation, there were giant cathedrals there and, and everything was great. And in fact, if you know the history, it's, it's much more interesting, number one. It, it's, it's not entirely inaccurate to say that that's what happened, but it took a lot longer. And there were a lot more compromises that missionaries had to make along the way because when the gospel was first preached to those who had never heard of the gospel before, they often just didn't really get a lot of it. <laughs> and that was okay. It maybe took three generations and you kept teaching and you kept founding monasteries so you'd have these little communities where the fullness of the gospel could be shown to everybody else and they could see, oh, I get it. Now I see, that's why, that's why the king can only have one wife. Now I get it. <laughs> you know. But in the meantime, there may be some, some slippage. And I think uh, you know, in the re-evangelization of the West, we may have to be creative about what we sort of focus on and what we say, well, that's not exactly right, but we're going to work on that. We're not going to get too hung up on it for now because the more important thing is to keep moving in this direction. Uh, and again, I'm making no specific recommendations here. I'm just saying that by knowledge of the past, by a, a memory of the church that we have together, uh, it can give us ideas for dealing with the present and give us more confidence. Uh, again, when I see so much anxiety in the church today, I keep thinking back and I, I hope I don't sound too overly pious or something when I say this, but I mean, the, the church right after the crucifixion or, or you know, the, the apostles right after the crucifixion were in a miserable state and it turned out okay. <laughs> you know, um, the, the church was persecuted mercilessly in the first century in, in the worst possible way. And somehow, Somehow we ended up with St. Augustine and St. Athanasius and Gregory the Great and Bernard and Mother Teresa. Like it all happened afterward. Uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit can do all kinds of things, uh, but, but not if we're so worried we forget to, to, to hope. <laughs> we forget to cultivate that virtue, right? Um, we have a national history. I've alluded to this, say, with questions of... Uh, the, the whole melting pot idea, you know, um, there, there's a lot of history that we tend to uh, 
try to suppress or forget because it's inconvenient and it's better to know it. You know, it's better to be honest about it so that we can have a, an honest discussion with our fellow citizens and say like, well, this is the kind of future we could have together. This is how we could cooperate, right? Um, I think the local history is really important. So to know the history, say, of, of the city of Chicago and its suburbs, um, to know the history of neighborhoods, know the history of Bridgeport for us who live here, uh, then uh, again, it can open our eyes to why people act in certain ways in different parts of the city. Um, I, uh, it occurred to me at a certain point, so my father's from the south side of Chicago. He grew up in McKinley Park. But we only lived in Chicago a very brief time when I was a little kid, and then we moved around a lot, finally settled in Green Bay. And uh, I remember thinking a lot of things my, my dad does seem really odd to me. And uh, then I moved to Chicago and lived on the south side for a while. And I thought, oh, that's why my dad does that. <laughs> I wish I could come up with an example, but it was just more kind of an attitude toward life where I'd see like, oh, this is just how Chicagoans talk. <laughs> like they say things like this. This is someone who went to Brother Rice High School acts like this. Like now I see it because... Uh, before that, I, I, had, I lived in a different local culture where things were different. And uh, uh, so I came to understand my father and his family in a new way. Uh, I came to understand what it means to be Polish on the south side of Chicago. Like there's a particular kind of uh, uh, set of circumstances that condition how you respond to things if you were a Polish immigrant in Chicago in, say, 1940, which his father was, okay? And, uh, and I, you know, I knew my grandfather a little bit. And so now I see like, oh, I get it. That's why my grandpa Louie was like that. Because he was, that, that's his experience was here. Um, so to be able to tell this story again, it frees me from this ignorance of like why people are the way they are. And then it, it, it gives me some ideas of, well, since that's how he or she is, this is what we can do together. You know, this is what we could accomplish if we, did, if we put our minds together. But before that, all I could see was, oh, this person's crazy. <laughs> Which is, as I mentioned, what I kept hearing from uh, different voters on different, different parts before the election in 2016. Um, last of all, memory of Benedictine history and of our community's history. So to know uh, what's possible as oblates, it's helpful to know something about what oblates have done in the past, like what the history of uh, Benedictine oblation is what the history of the Benedictine order is. By the way, so we have your, you know, your two patrons on the wall here, St. Henry and St. Francis of Rome. They were both Benedictine oblates. Uh, King Henry uh, is kind of considered one of the first who, who really sort of stands out. Um, and uh, you know, what, what was his relationship with Benedictine monasteries like? I actually don't know. Uh, I, this would be something I could research and tell you about. We know a little more about St. Francis of Rome. Uh, but we'll see throughout history there are different ways for oblates to, to relate to monasteries. Uh, and there are different ways to live Benedictine life. And this is, again, very liberating because I think uh, Father Reverend Brother Timothy can vouch for me. One of the things about formation for young guys coming in is to help them out of the mindset that often accompanies guys entering monasteries where there are going to be these sort of things you do and that's, that's Benedictine life. And then you realize, well, actually, some monasteries do it this way, and some do it this way, some do it this way. Uh, I think the brothers, 
probably cringe a little bit when I travel and visit other Benedictine monasteries because I come back with ideas like, oh, you should see what they do in France. Uh, we, could, we could fix this problem in our community. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, we can have a discussion about this, but it's helpful to know that throughout history, there's a reason why Benedictines are the way they are today. And it's rooted in decisions that go back through generations. Um, it's rooted in, you know, one of the things I like to point out about Benedictine life is that uh, if there's any order, uh, religious order in the church that's really been hammered hard by uh, modernity and liberalism, it's Benedictines. Uh, you know, the first thing that um, secularists want to do is get rid of monasteries. And uh, so let's say King Henry VIII figured out he could get a lot of money by closing monasteries and kicking the monks out. Uh, Napoleon closed monasteries. Uh, Joseph of Austria gave monasteries ultimata. Either you, you teach or do social work or you get out, uh, but you can't live a contemplative life. That's not allowed in, in the empire of uh, Austria-Hungary anymore. Uh, we see all kinds of anti-clericalism in, in uh, France in the early 20th century. And so our monks at Ancalca had to go into exile. Uh, and there are all these dislocations in the last 300, 400 years in Benedictine life. And this accounts for some of the struggles we have as Benedictines because a lot of the traditions we had have been interrupted and we have to recover them. Uh, we just read um, the, the Cypresses Believe in God in the Catholic Reader Society. And I told the group that uh, in, it was in 1937 or what, what year was it? An entire monastery of ours was, they, they were all murdered except for the abbot. And so, and, and they were just uh, beatified a couple of years ago. So we get to read about them in the martyrology now. But, uh, and, and the, the poor abbot, he just happened to be gone on a trip. He would have died too, but he, he lived out his life feeling guilty because he wasn't there to die with his brothers. Uh, he lived at uh, our monastery at Ramsgate until he died. He did some work in the Philippines. Uh, but yeah, so the, uh, the communists went right after the, the, uh, this monastery and, and that monastery doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and, but all of our Spanish monasteries were persecuted during the Spanish Civil War. And so, uh, you know, putting Benedictine life back together. And so it's, it's easy, say, to look at Benedictine. Oh, an, another great example would be Benedictine women in the United States. So typically, Benedictine uh, sisters came over with the promise that they could live their solemn profession, pray the divine office, but they would help out with the missions in uh, German-speaking areas usually. And then when they got here, they were actually told, no, you can't pray the office. You can't wear the habit, uh, the full habit. We need you to help out in rectories. We need this, this, and that. So if there's some tension between women religious, because this, this wasn't just for Benedictines, but if there's some, some tension between women religious and bishops, uh, even today, it's because there's a history there. And it's important to understand that because oftentimes there's a lot of criticism of, of women religious without understanding that there were injustices that took place that really, uh, if you understand that injustice, then it makes more sense of where we're at at the moment. And again, having that kind of openness to the previous story means we can think together of a possible future. Uh, we're not limited by just what we happen to see in the present. We know that it's got uh, more complexity and more depth to it than what we thought. Um, so, uh, last thing I'll say, to go back to Dante. Dante, as, as uh, you may know, but many people forget, didn't just write about hell. <laughs> he actually walked through hell and got out. And he went through purgatory and made it to Paradiso. 
Uh, and he was told in heaven over and over again, you know, when you go back, when you go back, we want you to tell everybody this. And so Dante is giving us a vision of the contemplative life. He is seeing, his, his eyes are enlightened. He sees heaven. He sees the saints. He sees their joy. He sees the Blessed Virgin Mary. He sees the Holy Trinity. He sees the hypostatic union of Christ's humanity and divinity. And he comes back to report to us and tell us, you know, it's worth hoping for. But, but you need to change. You need to repent, as Father Brendan said. You know, we, we need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so we can see what, what it is that's possible for us. Sanctity, sainthood, uh, beatitude. Uh, once we see this, it will change who we are now. It will help us to bring others with us to this goal. We have something real to hope for. Uh, and we will begin to arrange our lives together in a new way. Uh, we will have hope that will transform us, you know, just like the child is transformed from wanting the cookie to enjoying broccoli and good health. We will go from, you know, hoping for things in this life to hoping for things in heaven, in the communion of saints. So thank you very much. That's the end.